0: I want to welcome those joining us over our Facebook and YouTube channels. Uh, happy Sabbath to you. Uh, joining our Pal Talk Church here and our church here in Battle Creek. We're about to get started into our message this morning. And before we do, we want to ask uh, the Lord to uh, to bless us and our gathering here together on this most holy Sabbath day. So I invite you uh, to bow your heads In your hearts with me now, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day and the opportunity that we have to come here together with the saints here in Battle Creek. We pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all your people as you've promised this holy day to be very near to us. We wish to keep this day holy for thou art holy. We need the Spirit to be alive in our hearts and in our minds. We pray for a a reconversion right now. Father, change our hearts to be hearts of flesh and be more like like you. We ask that you forgive us our sins. And Lord, please be with those who couldn't be with us today, those who still may be traveling to houses of praise and worship. Give them travel mercies. We thank you for your wonderful blessings towards us and the outpouring of, of, of your watch care each and every day. Please be near our families, especially our children. Keep them safe. Give me the words to speak this morning, Lord. May hearts be open to the truth, and may we cultivate a love for it through the indwelling spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen and amen. Uh, the series that I've started here in the last couple of weeks, I've, I've entitled The Closing Scenes, Following in the Crisis of Christ. And this message this morning, this particular study, I've called Facing the Mob. Facing the Mob. Now, if you recall, to follow Jesus hereafter, friends, we must first follow him here. And the remnant who will share a special experience of fellowship with him in the hereafter will first share special experiences of fellowship with him here in this world. And we've been studying the closing events of the life of Jesus, uh, noting how they are to be paralleled in some degree uh, by the experiences of the remnant people, uh, his church. We've noticed the predictions of Jesus to his disciples of the coming crisis in Gethsemane and the judgment hall and Calvary. He clearly foretold the events that were to take place and urged them to unite with him in prayer. You recall in Gethsemane? In preparation, you see, for the closing scenes of his life here. Likewise, Jesus, through the spirit of prophecy, has told his remnant people of our crisis in the closing scenes of our life here, which are soon to break upon the world uh, as an overwhelming surprise, the Bible says. And as you think about that, and we go through this, I pray, thats my prayer, that the Holy Spirit opens your minds and you see the parallels. Jesus has always been preparing us for this time. For 6,000 years, He's been preparing a people for this time. Don't doubt that and I think you'll begin to see it. He's told us the experience of prayer that is necessary to get ready for those scenes and he has invited us to watch with him, to watch and pray that we may be ready. In our last study we noted the Savior's prayer conflict there in Gethsemane. We noted that he took himself to the place of prayer. It was not because others invited him to go, hey, Jesus, come on, let's go to Gethsemane. Uh, Neither did anyone compel him to go, hey, come on, we're going to Gethsemane, right? He knew that his hour was come, and he took himself to the place of prayer that he had used on many occasions. This wasn't a new garden to them that they just all of a sudden found and said, hey, this would be a nice place to have prayer. Very often when they were in this vicinity, they would go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So there was a pattern here. Likewise, those who study the prophecies today will recognize the striking of God's clock, the time we're living in now. We should know that we are in the final hour, friends. Do you believe that? And that just ahead of us, then, is the crisis that the National Sunday Law will bring. The crisis that persecution will bring to God's people. And we should be seeking the Lord for that special preparation necessary to meet that special crisis. The closing scenes. Now Jesus gave the disciples warnings, didn't he? And they were caught unawares. And they were caught unprepared. Sometimes we look at that and we scratch our heads and we go, how could they be so surprised, and so unaware and unprepared. Are we much different? Let's not be too hard on these men. Because what about us? Are we prepared? Jesus had told the disciples to watch and pray. And when he came to them in Gethsemane, how did he find them? Remember, he he went away a little ways and he fell to the ground and he prayed and he got up and he came out. How did he find them? Yeah. Matthew 26, verses 40 to 41. And he cometh unto the disciples, and he findeth them asleep. And he saith unto Peter. I always found that um, interesting. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, you'll know that Peter was kind of the head of the disciples. There was something about Peter. Peter was in many respects, I believe, a natural-born leader. And Jesus recognized this in Peter, and He loved Peter for that. So He doesn't come to John. He doesn't come to James, the other two. Anyone else, He comes to Peter, right? And He says unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with Me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation... That the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I believe, as I've studied this out through uh, a long time, my entire life, we, you know, we go to Gethsemane; those closing scenes. I believe that this was more than a normal kind of sleep that they were in. Like, you know, it wasn't like a regular night's sleep. It was one of those sleeps where you're trying to to stay awake. And yet there is such a, like a comfortableness, you know, about you. And, and there's like much more pleasure in closing your eyes, you know. Sometimes you awaken from such such a sleep and, and, and like you're shocked that, to realize that you had fallen asleep. Right? Has that ever happened to anyone? Or am I the only one? Has anyone else gone through that, you know, that head bob kind of action, you know? Uh, where you, you're desperately wanting to stay awake, but you just can't physically keep the eyelids open. You know? It, 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 yeah. I was waiting for somebody to say, No, I've never experienced that. I'm like, Yeah, I see that in church. Shame. Shame. <laughs> but it's kinda of like you're in you're kind of in a drowsy stupor, you know, and your body is paralyzed to what the mind's wanting it to do. And so I know some of you have experienced the head bob sleep, you know. So you know firsthand that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? And I think we've all experienced that. The disciples were trying to follow the Lord's instruction to watch him pray. They didn't just go, oh, yeah, okay, I'm I'm, I'm just going to hit the sack here. They really wanted to pray, and they were praying for a while. And I imagine that they, too, were doing the head bob action, you know, and their body was paralyzed to what the mind wanted it to do, and I imagine that they were shocked when they were awakened by Jesus and realized that they had fallen asleep because they really didn't want to. What didn't help them was uh, the long eventful day that they had just had, and more importantly than that, because that's the physical part of it, okay. More importantly, was the lack of concern for the danger that was around them due to their self-confidence. So being, uh, being comfortable physically and spiritually, sleep came much easier then, see. And so are we like them? If we look at ourselves, are we like them? Are we comfortable with our condition? Or are we like Jesus? and watching and praying, because we know our time is at hand. Notice this from The Desire of Ages, page 688. They did not intend to forsake their Lord, she says, but they seemed paralyzed by a stupor which they might have shaken off. That encouraged me, because I thought, well, if we're in kind of a spiritual stupor, it can be shaken off. But how can it be shaken off? Well, she says, they might have shaken off if they had continued pleading with God. They did not realize the necessity of watchfulness and earnest prayer in order to withstand temptation. They did not realize the necessity. See, because they were spiritually comfortable with their condition. After all, they're next to Jesus, aren't they? See the danger there? Not No danger being next to Jesus, but with us thinking, oh, because I'm so close to Jesus, I'm okay. There's a word for that. You know what that word is? Presumption. Oh, well, I'm okay. I'm next to Jesus. We're presuming things. But as the disciples were comfortable in their spiritual condition, we're talking about parallels here now. So are many in the church today. As the disciples slept in Gethsemane, so many are sleeping now. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2, page 205. And I shared this the last time. By these sleeping disciples is represented a sleeping church. When the day of God's visitation is nigh, it is a time of clouds and thick darkness when to be found asleep is most perilous. Now is not the time to be asleep. So, while there are those who are sleeping, let's think about the example here now we're looking at, Christ in Gethsemane. There must also be those who, like Jesus, are awake and pleading with God. Would you agree with that? Notice in the book early writings how much these souls in the closing scenes of this the beast conflict we're going to be coming into, resembled Jesus while he was praying in Gethsemane in the closing scenes of his conflict. Early writings, page 269. I saw some with strong faith and agonizing cries pleading with God. Their countenances were pale and marked with deep anxiety, expressive of their internal struggle. I want you to notice it's not so much the physical things that are, they're going through. Hunger, thirst, privation, whatever it is. It's more of the internal struggle. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what was it with Jesus? It wasn't so much the physical, was it? It was the internal struggle. But notice, I want you to notice the, the resemblances here. Isaiah 52, verse 14, speaking about the Savior, says His visage was so marred more than any man, and His form more than the sons of men. In fact, when they, He came to wake them up, at first, you know when you come out of a a, a sleep, you know, you, you've not got your full senses yet, do you? They didn't recognize who He was. He was so marred, His physical appearance from that internal struggle, He was taking on the weight of our sins, friends. They didn't at first recognize Him. The Desire of Ages, page 689. The disciples awakened at the voice of Jesus, but they hardly knew Him, she says. His face was so changed by anguish. Well, sure. But I want to thank God that there are some today that are watching and praying. You and I can choose, you know that, whether we'll be among the praying ones or we will be among the sleeping ones. I hope each one of us prays is among the praying ones, you know. And so you remember that it was self confidence that caused the uh, uh, the disciples to fail to accept the warning of uh, that the Lord had given them. So today. Confidence in self can lead us to be so sure that we'll face the crisis of the future, you know, okay, come out okay, that we'll fail to intercede and agonize in prayer like Jesus did, and thus receive the preparation that God would have us in order to be victorious in the battle that's ahead for us in this crisis. So now we're going to study the sequel of the Savior's prayer experience and the sequel to the disciples' experience of sleep. Keep in mind the parallels, okay, with his crisis experience and that of the remnant people and their crisis experience that's ahead. So let's first note the answer to the Savior's prayer. Did you know that Jesus, he prayed three times, right? Did you notice that, did you know there was an answer to that prayer? Many people are, they don't think about it. They just remember the prayer and the mob coming. Do you know there was an answer to his prayer? Well, let's look at it. Luke 22, verses 41 to 43. says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, this is the third time, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What's it saying? Verse 43. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. There was an answer to his prayers. What was the answer? He got a visit from an angel. This was the highest angel in glory. This was Gabriel, the one who stands at the right hand of the throne of God. And and let's read about it. From the book The Desire of Ages, page 693. Now, this is speaking about the conflict uh, um, between the powers of darkness and Jesus as he was there in Gethsemane, clutched the cold ground in bitter agony, as he was treading the wine press, the Bible says, uh, alone, fighting the battle for our salvation. This is what, what we're talking about here. So, Desire of Ages, page 693. The world's unfallen and the heavenly angels had watched with intense interest as the conflict, this is what the conflict is, is, as the conflict drew to its close. Satan and his confederacy of evil, the legions of apostasy, watched intently this great crisis in the work of redemption. That's why I entitled this series, The Closing Scenes, Following in the Crisis of Christ. And this is it. This is the crisis right here. This was Christ's crisis at Gethsemane. And of course, it carried on to Calvary, didn't it? Going on, she says, The powers of good and evil waited to see what answer would come to Christ's thrice-repeated prayer. Angels had longed to bring relief to the divine sufferer, but this might not be. No way of escape was found for the Son of God. In this awful crisis, when everything was at stake, when the mysterious cup trembled in the hand of the sufferer, the heavens opened. A light shone forth amid the stormy darkness of the crisis hour. Get that again. A light shone forth amid what? The stormy darkness of the crisis hour. I told you at the beginning, I encourage you, God does not forsake his people. And the mighty angel who stands in God's presence, occupying the position from which Satan fell, came to the side of Christ. The angel came not to take the cup from Christ's hand, but to strengthen him to drink it with the assurance, see, of the Father's love. He came to give power to the divine human suppliant. He pointed him to the open heavens, telling him of the souls that would be saved you realize that Gabriel could have been telling Jesus about us right here. You're saving Susan. You're saving Jerry. You're saving Joel. It's a little more personal then, isn't it? He came to give power to the divine human supply, and he pointed him to the open heavens, telling him of the souls that would be saved as the result of his sufferings. He assured him that his father is greater and more powerful than Satan, that his death would result in the utter discomfiture of Satan, and that the kingdom of this world would be given to the saints of the Most High. He told him that he would see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied for he would see a multitude of the human race saved, eternally saved. Now think of it, friends. Think of this. An angel, Gabriel, highest angel in the order of angels, bringing power from heaven to Jesus in this crisis hour. What a visit that was from heaven to earth. What a visit. And as you contemplate this, and as I did, it has to make angels wonder at the sight of Jesus being in such a weakened human condition. Have you ever thought about that? Such a mystery. The human and divine person, Jesus the Christ. And Gabriel giving the Lord comfort and strength to endure. Think of that. An angel giving Jesus. Comfort, encouragement, and strength. What does that tell us about the form that Jesus took to save us? Some people say he was fully God. No, friends. Weakened human flesh, and yet, through the Spirit, he did no sin ever. And the Bible tells us that we too can be overcomers like he Praise God, we can be like Jesus. Amen? Amen. But I want you to notice something very important. Gabriel did not remove the cup that Jesus was drinking, did he? Gabriel did not take away the coming crisis, did he? He didn't hold back the persecution. He didn't prevent Christ's suffering before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, before Herod, and Calvary. What was Gabriel's purpose? Exactly, To strengthen Jesus to bear the crisis. To strengthen Him to bear it. That should encourage us. So down here today, as God's people enter into the, the prayer experience we, we read, uh, described there in early writings, page 269, 270, they too are to receive an answer by heavenly visitation. you know that? God's remnant people will get an answer for their crying and sighing. There's another angel coming down from heaven with great power and we read about him in Revelation 18.1. Don't we? You ever wondered, why does this angel have to come down? Can you see the parallels with Christ's closing crisis and the crisis that we're going to go through? Revelation 18, verse 1. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And that's what you and I should be longing for if we're not. But remember that before the glory of that angel must come the agonizing prayer struggle of the saint, of the remnant before the visit of this mighty angel, God's people must enter into an experience that brings them to the place where there's just one thing they will want. You know that? One thing. What was the one thing Jesus wanted there in Gethsemane? Well, of course He wanted to save the people. The Father's will. He wanted to do the Father's will. And that's what these remnant, the people of God, They want to do the Father's will above their own, completely. Humanity must be so blended with and and subservient uh, to the divine will that the remnant will be prepared to give an exhibition during their trial, you see, such as Jesus gave in his trial. We sit there and we read that all these false accusations and all these things they heaped upon Jesus, which we'll talk about in the coming studies, and what was his reaction We're told, inspiration tells us, they looked upon him and there was a nobility about him. And he answered not a word. Not until they brought his father into it. The remnant are going to go through the same things. And so we must experience what Jesus experienced, see? And we'll do what Jesus had done. So we're going to be tried in every way that men and devils can invent. Because that's what Jesus went through. And so will we, friends. And I'm not intending to frighten anyone. you know. But we have to understand the history of the devil and his evil towards the followers of God. We have to understand it. We must not be like the disciples were and be paralyzed by a spirit strange spiritual stupor of self-confidence and presumption. The devil wishes to destroy the remnant people of God. Do you believe that? You You know, I've heard it said, yeah, I believe. I don't think we really understand that. Uh, And I'm not saying that possibly that we can understand it completely. But the Bible tells us so. Revelation 12, verse 17, And the dragon was wroth, angry with the woman, that's God's church, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan is angry and makes war with the remnant. War is a state, friends, of armed conflict with the purpose to destroy and kill. That's what war is. Do we understand that Satan wants to kill each of us? Do you realize that it's easy for Satan to control a mob? You know what mobs are? Mobs are rioters. You get into the original language, and that's what it means. A group of people that sometimes don't know one another at all, but they've come together for a common cause to cause havoc. Right. So Satan can control that. He uses mobs to destroy righteousness and specifically attack God's followers in some way. History bears this out over and over and over again. Look at what's going on in the cities of our country today. Mobs, protesting mobs that are protesting with violence the result. Violence is always the result of a of a riot. By definition. Mm -hmm. The same Spirit is controlling all mobs, friends. The same Spirit controlling the mob that came for Christ controls the mobs we see today. It's the same Spirit. Don't be deceived, friends. The Spirit of Christ is never found in the mob. Never. It is the mob that wants to destroy the Spirit of Christ. And to be prepared to face that mob... will come to destroy we must have the blessing of a heavenly visitation such as jesus received you see and in order to be prepared for that visitation we must enter into the prayer experience and pray in the spirit like jesus prayed we must reach the place where our will is swallowed up in god's will and our one desire is expressed in the words of jesus not as i will father but as thou wilt I mean, isn't it wonderful that God can bring us to that spiritual place he's promised to? That spiritual condition that God can be. And not just that he can be, that he wants to be our only refuge. That's his will for us. When we get to that point, we can say as the psalmist does in Psalm 91 two: I will say the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him will I trust. I won't trust myself. My heart's wicked. Who can know it, the Bible says. Now, we've just noted that the visit of the angel there in Gethsemane was not to take the cup from the hand of Jesus, but to strengthen him to drink it. The coming outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the latter rain is not to take the saints out of trouble. It is not to fit, uh, lift them above or or, or beyond the possibility of suffering. It is to prepare them. Think about this now. It is to prepare them, because I touched on this last time to prepare them for the greatest ordeal of suffering that any group of human beings have ever experienced. Now, you can go back through history and see some pretty bad things. But there's a reason why this experience is called the time of Jacob's trouble. So let's look at what happened to Jesus after the angel came, and what happened to the disciples after the angel came, and let's see if we can find the footprints that we need to follow as we look at the closing experiences there in Gethsemane. Go back to Luke 22, and let's begin with verse 45. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and what? Pray, Pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And while he yet spake, behold a multitude. Now, that word there, multitude, means uh, um, it's a group of unruly people, like a mob. Okay? And he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? Now this is talking about the disciples. And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. The war's on. Mob comes and you got kind of a mob forming to retaliate, defend. God's not in mob. Because look at verse 51, and Jesus answered said, "Suffer ye thus far," and he touched his ear and healed him. So, John tells us that as the mob approached, as they came to to Jesus, they fell backward. Remember John's account? The Desire of Ages, the book Desire of Ages, explains the reason for that. As the mob and Judas approached Jesus, the angel who just ministered to Christ, Gabriel, passed between the Savior and the mob. And as his glory was revealed, as he did that, the whole host of the mob just fell backwards. Now, they all saw it. The mob experienced it. And so, to the disciples, it seemed very apparent that Jesus could escape. And so, they thought that that's what that manifestation of the glory was for. They thought that the Savior would have another one of those, you know, miraculous experiences in which he would escape from his enemies. And that would be easy to think, wouldn't it? Because that happened before. What was different about this time? Well, he stayed, but why? His time had come, you see. His time had come. So Jesus knew better than to leave. He just stood there. And as the glory faded, the mob got up, Judas got up, and they started back up to Christ. So when you think about Judas there, even seeing that, Think of the the stubbornness, the hard-heartedness, the impenitence, the selfishness of that wicked heart that he now had. Satan had full reign of it. And with all that manifestation of divine glory, the one thing that his mind was intent upon was carrying out the plan that he had arranged. To come up, kiss Jesus, and betray Him to His murderers. What an exhibition of sin, friends. But on the other hand, Note the infinite love of Jesus. He allowed the traitor's kiss, didn't he? He didn't push off that man that that has betrayed him for thirty pieces of silver, the wages for a slave. He just asks, "Friend, wherefore art thou come?" And then adds, "Judas, betrayest thou son of man with a kiss?" But Judas, see that he didn't flinch. He was unmoved. He throws his arms around Jesus. Oh, I love you, Jesus. And kisses him. And he appears to weep as in sympathy with the plight that he's in. And let me tell you, friends, we just as well get ready for just such experiences ourselves. We've been told that as we go into the persecution, which is just ahead of us, there will be Some who will be like Judas, who will betray their brethren. There's parallels here. Now, we don't know who they are. And unless we enter into the experience that Jesus had, we're in great danger of entering into the experience that Judas had. Because there's parallels here. Unless we are willing to reveal the great love of Jesus, we will eventually reveal the greed, the selfishness, the stubborn hardness of Judas. And let me take a moment here, for I think this is important. You know one of the great reasons that Judas betrayed the Savior? And I'm bringing it out because many people think it's just a small, a small thing, but it really isn't a small thing. You know, when you, when you plant a garden, you start with a seed. And if you have that seed and you water it, what happens? It grows. One of the greatest reasons that Jesus, Judas betrayed the Savior was that he decided to teach Jesus a lesson. He thought that he had not been listened to sufficiently. He thought that his plans and his suggestions weren't given the due weight that they were to be given. Now who else does that sound like? Huh? Yeah, Lucifer, doesn't it? And friends, if there's if you're listening to me, someone out there is listening to me that is tempted along those lines, I would plead with you to stop right where you are. If there's ever been allowed for a moment one little thought of bitterness in your heart because your plans weren't accepted, your ideas weren't listened to, your suggestions weren't carried out, I'll just say beware. Learn the lesson of Judas and just take it to the Lord. Let it go. But note the love of Jesus there in the garden. That even with all that was going on, He saw the man with the wounded ear, that ear that had been cut off by Peter trying to defend the Lord, and Jesus put forth his hand, he restores that ear. You realize that was the last miracle of healing Jesus did before he died. And so we see see the mob, we see Judas, we see the contrast there between that and Christ. Now let's look at Peter. Now Peter was not like Judas. He was far from it. But Peter failed in Gethsemane too. And before the night was over, he dealt to the Savior's heart, I believe, a deeper wound than Judas did. The denial of Peter pierced the Savior's soul more than the betrayal of Judas. That's to say that there is more than one route to failure, isn't there? There's more than one way to to defeat there's more than one sin that leads to disaster in the crisis hour, friends. Peter's failure came not from some deep seated, you know, selfish animosity towards Jesus or plans to have his own way, but Peter needed to be converted deep down. Right? Christ had told him that if, you know, remember a few hours before, he said Satan wanted to sift him as wheat. Look at that, Luke twenty two, verse thirty one thirty two. The Lord said Simon Simon, that's Peter, behold Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art what? Converted, Converted. strengthen thy brethren. Look what it took to convert Peter. He betrayed the Lord. But there was hope for Peter, wasn't there? (laughs) There was hope for Judas, but he ignored the prompting of the Spirit to be converted. But, you know, instead of being warned, Peter was offended. And when the crisis hour came and he was awakened from sleep, Peter rose to the emergency, didn't he? got out a sword, started using it to defend Christ. He was surprised. Disappointed. He was offended that Jesus, instead of appreciating his defense, reproved him. How do we react when the Lord reproves us? Those who he loves, he chastens and rebukes. We, we, we often forget the love part don't we? He's doing it because he loves us. And not only did did he reprove Peter, he undid his work by healing the man that he'd wounded. So offended, disappointed, in addition, filled with fears, he saw that Jesus allowed himself to be bound, carried off by the mob. Peter was the one, because they all looked up to Peter, He's the one who suggested uh, to the other disciples that they just as well save themselves. Judas led the mob that took the Savior. Peter led the group that fled away from the Savior in the crisis hour. And there will be those like Judas in the coming crisis, friends. And there will be those like Peter in the coming crisis. There will be those when the persecution breaks, when the national Sunday law has been passed, and when people are being put in prison, when heavy fines are levied upon those who keep the Sabbath, there will be those who at first, they'll put up a great fight for the right, as Peter did. But their fight will only be the prelude to their flight. I can put it that way. And that thought should give us deep searching of our own souls. Look at Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, pages 400-401. to 401. As trials thicken around us, both separation and unity will be seen in our ranks. Some who are now ready to take up weapons of warfare will in times of real peril make it manifest that they have not built upon the solid rock. They will yield to temptation. Those who have had great light and precious privileges but have not improved them will, under one pretext or another, go out from us. Not having received the love of the truth, they will be taken in the delusions of the enemy. They will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils and will depart from the faith. And when I've read that before or over, I say, Lord, not I. Oh, yeah, it is. Now think about the situation here. All the disciples of Jesus, except Judas, were ready to defend him and loyally stand by him when the crisis broke. But not long afterward, he was left standing alone, wasn't he? And he himself had foretold this terrible sifting, this tremendous sifting that was coming. In John 16, verse 32, Christ said during that very evening, on the way to the garden, this is when he said it, he said, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, he is now come that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. So somewhere between now and the coming of the Lord, friends, every one of the remnant people will be tested all alone. There will be times when we'll be comforted by the fellowship of friends and, and, and the prayers of the brethren. But somewhere between now and translation day, I hope, I can't say I'll guarantee, but I could just about guarantee you'll stand as Jesus stood all alone. And maybe it would be a good thing to learn to stand alone now. Don't you think? Mm -hmm. Might it be in the providence of God if sometimes we're placed in circumstances where to, to stand for conscience means to stand all alone? You know, kind of a trial run or two or three? Kind of builds faith, doesn't it? I'm sure you remember, I've said this on many occasions, to the world it'll look like you're all alone, but don't ever forget that with Jesus you're never alone. All heaven is by your side. (laughs) That's right, me too. And this leads us back to where we closed our last study. We need to learn to pray as Jesus prayed. Then we shall be able to witness as He witnessed and Jesus himself, although he had never failed once in all his earthly life, and although he had a deep experience with God, he dared not trust himself to meet the mob at midnight with just an ordinary preparation. He took himself to prayer. But the prayer experience he had those three hours in Gethsemane was simply the... It was like the finishing touch. It was like the capstone of uh, to a whole life of prayer, friends. And unless you and I have something on which to place the final stone in our prayer experience, we'll not know how to do it any more than those disciples knew how to do it. And we will fail like they failed. So as we think of how Jesus stood in Gethsemane when the mob came, and and why He stood calm and and self-possessed and loving, and as we think of how the disciples failed then and why they failed, surely... We want to learn more about how to pray as Jesus prayed. So I want to study a few more points about prayer. You could call them the ABC of the prayer experience. We need to go on and on and on from there, you see. But this is where we begin in the prayer experience. And the step in the prayer experience that I'm most interested in is the next step for you to take. And if we'll learn the science of prayer and keep applying that science day by day, Jesus himself will see to it that by the time that mob appears, we will have learned our lessons, and we will have the glory that strengthened our Savior in that crisis hour. Amen? Amen. As we think of Jesus in Gethsemane, the angel coming with glory and the mob coming with persecution, we can't help but think what's ahead for us. At least I can't. There's a little statement that's so big in meaning that I want to share it with you. It's from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9, page 16. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9, page 16. She says, It is impossible to give any idea of the experience of the people of God who shall be alive upon the earth when celestial glory and a repetition of the persecutions of the past are blended. Note that. Are blended. What's blended? Celestial glory and what? Repetition of the persecutions of the past. They're blended. They will walk in the light proceeding from the throne of God. By means of the angels, there will be constant communication between heaven and earth. You know, I often get questions when we talk about prophecy and the end times and stuff. I have many saints question, what are we to do? Where will we go? Those kinds of questions. Well, we have promises. We have been given counsel on what we should be doing now. But didn't we just read here? There will be constant what? Communication between heaven and earth. God will direct our paths, friends. God will direct our paths. And this blending, though, you see, isn't that what happened in Gethsemane? Celestial glory and persecutions were blended, weren't they? The angel came, and then the mob came. That blended experience is coming again. Would you like to see the angel? Then you must be willing to meet the mob, for they're both coming, okay? Okay? There's no Switzerland we can run to and be neutral. It ain't gonna. It don't exist. Okay. Now the great controversy pictures some of the remnant of God being in prison cells and dungeons, and angels coming with light to them, uh, but not necessarily to open up the gates and break the prison wall. Right there's going to be a blending of celestial glory and a repetition of the persecutions of the past that we read. And so again do you see how necessary it is for for us to reach the place where like Jesus we can say as he did in John 18:11 the cup which my father hath given me shall I not drink it? Remember when the the disciples the the mother and the two John and James came to Jesus and said I won't, want my sons to sit at your right hand left hand and he said are you able to drink of the cup that i'm going to drink and they said oh yeah we're able to he said you will (laughs) we will friends because he's going to have a generation of people that will do it vindicate god jesus did that for us to vindicate us He's going to have a people that will vindicate the character of His Father. It's a remarkable thing to consider. And it's a privilege to be called by God into His family. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. But, see, Peter didn't understand, did he? He didn't understand um, what Jesus was saying. You know, that's when Peter took the sword, cut it off, and, and Christ told him to put the sword up, and he said, Peter, you don't need to fight. You don't need to cut off men's ears or their heads. or, or That's not the kind of war that I'm you know, uh, uh, representing. My Father has plenty of angels to defend me and you. But the Father has a plan. And the cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And still... He just didn't understand. But unless you and I had learned to accept, you see, the petty annoyances, the irritations, the interruptions of daily life, as I believe God allows, because it's for our best interest, we certainly will be utterly confused when the mob appears just like Peter, friends. Let's not be that way, amen? Jesus learned those experiences how to relate to them in prayer. And we're to learn it in prayer. So in our last lesson, I gave you four simple rules on prayer. First, and I'll go back through these in detail, a place to pray. Second, set a time to pray. Third, learn to pray aloud where only God can hear you. And fourth, if the mind wanders, bring it back. The first one was a place to pray. Matthew 6 and verse 6 says, But thou... When thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Jesus had select pra- places. A number of times it was in nature. I mentioned, I think last time, William Miller. He had a grove not far from his home that he often would go. That was one place he prayed often. Of course, not in the winter time, but you know what I'm saying. Now, you don't need just one place. You can have several places, just like the Lord did. In fact, the Garden of Gethsemane was just such a place for Jesus. He'd been there several times before. The second was a to set a time for prayer. And again, you may have more than one time for prayer. But unless you have one time for pra- prayer, you'll never have more than one time, Right? The psalmist spoke of two times a day. Psalms 5, verse 3. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. Psalms 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So you have morning and evening. Daniel prayed three times a day. God doesn't say... You've got to pray one time, two times, three times, ten times, twelve times. Right? But Paul says, pray without ceasing. (laughs) Is that like one time? (laughs) Right? Be in an attitude of prayer and communication with God is what Paul's saying. And so, really throughout the day, we're to lift up our hearts to God, right, beloved? So we need a a place to pray and and a time to pray. And the third one is to learn to pray aloud where only God can hear you. You know, there's a difference. Let me just put this out there. There's a difference between praying aloud and praying loudly. Mm -hmm. Isn't there? Mm -hmm. There have been people who prayed so loud when they were praying alone that the neighbors could hear them. Oh, my. You know, that's just... (laughs) It's like the proud Pharisee. He stood on the corner. He prayed aloud. He prayed so people could hear him. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Well, unless it's yeah, public public prayer. Of course you want them to hear it then. But we're talking about praying in secret. Okay. Jesus said, when you pray, enter into the closet. Shut the door. Learn to shut out the world and shut Jesus in, is what he's saying. Learn to pray aloud, not just think to God. You know what I mean? Not just think to God, but talk to God. The fourth point was, if the mind wanders, bring it back. This takes practice. Messages to the young people. Page 115. If the mind wanders, we must bring it back. Notice what she says. By persevering effort, habit will finally make it easy. So don't get discouraged and quit if your mind wanders. Don't think that it's a sign that you're having an ineffectual conversation with God and just be discouraged by it and go, oh, well, I give up. I can't keep my mind on it. That's what part of the effort in prayer is. That's what part of the wrestling in prayer is to keep the mind focused on the point. Yeah, squirrel, as you said. Oh, you oh squirrel. <laughs> you know, some of us might have a predisposition to do that. Squirrel. You know, like a dog does just, you know. So, we need to, to, to wrestle. We need to put effort in. We need to fight that. We need to bring the mind back. Here are a couple more points for prayer before I close up. You call this number five. Mix the Bible and the spirit of prophecy in with your prayer, mix it right in, just like the ingredients in a recipe. Okay? Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 214. Everyone must now search the Bible for himself and upon his knees before God. That would be in prayer, right? With the humble, teachable heart of a child if he would know what the Lord requires of him. What? Everyone must now search the Bible for himself upon his knees before God. She's saying. This is actually in the chapter speaking about the seal of God which I find to be interesting. It talks about the people who go through the Gethsemane experience with Jesus and who sigh and cry and will eventually receive the outpouring of the latter rain as Jesus received the visit of the angel who strengthened him and and the angel will strengthen his people for the final conflict. It's that same chapter. And what are they doing? They're taking their Bible, searching their Bible in prayer. Testimonies uh, for the Church, Volume 5. Again, same page, 214. Everyone must now search the Bible for himself upon his knees before God with the humble... I just read that, didn't I? How would that get copied over again? Anyway, you, you start to see that. So you take your Bible and you open it up. Don't just talk to God. Let God talk to you through His Word. See? In an atmosphere of prayer. That's what Paul's meaning, too. Pray without ceasing. Have that atmosphere where you can talk to God. Read a verse or two to get a picture in your mind. Close your eyes. Talk to Jesus about it. Meditate on it. Open up your mind to let God talk with you about what you're reading, and you talk to God about it. Do it um, Do it with the desire of ages. But I will tell you, do it only with what God has inspired, and the devil will be shut out. Don't just pick up any religious book and do this because that may open a wedge for the devil to come into your mind. but God's word shuts him out. see praise the Lord. Number six, mix faith with your prayer and speaking about Israel uh, you know as they were wandering around there in the in the desert, Notice what it says in Hebrews 4, verse 2. It says, For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them. Why? Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. The reading of the Bible will do a little good, friends, without the exercise of faith in what it says. Right? Prayer will do you no good without faith. Mark 11, verse 24. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when ye pray, believe that you receive them. That's exercise faith in what's being told you, and ye shall have them. God, they're not empty promises that God has made. But we have to take them and, and exercise our faith in them. That means do them. Amen? There's more to prayer than just kneeling down and telling God a number of things that we'd like to have Him do for us. Faith is believing and trusting God. That's what it is. And Jesus tells you that when you pray, you're to do what? Believe that you receive. Then Hebrews 4 said we're to mix Bible study with our prayer. And we're to mix faith with our prayers. Now, Deb... My wife was in the kitchen the other day. And she was baking bread and she was trying a new recipe. Now, does it make any difference in a bread recipe whether you just put the ingredients in or whether you mix them as well? (laughs) All right? Makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? That's the prayer experience that some people are having. They wonder why the recipe book doesn't work. There's nothing wrong with the recipe book, but you want to be sure that all the ingredients are in, and then you want to be sure to...